I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirits may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Sally. Now, as you listen to that, I wonder what you were feeling. Was it sympathy for the poor wretch that has to preach on it? (laughs) That's nice. Or for yourselves, having to listen to it, perhaps? Was it curiosity as to what I might say? Or maybe for some, was it also animosity towards elements of the passage, which is a little challenging to our modern sensibilities today, at least with its apparent harshness of tone? So it's not an easy one to preach, let's be honest. But actually, with all Scripture... There are always important lessons to be learnt, especially when we look beneath the presenting issue, broadening its application to us all. So that's how I'm going to tackle it this morning. We're going to look at the specifics, first of all, of the situation there, then go to the broader principles that we can take from it, and finally have some take-away applications for our lives and our church today. But first, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your forgiveness and love. We pray that as we engage with this hard teaching, our hearts would not be hard. 
our ears would not be closed. And as a church, we would grasp your vision for us all. Amen. Okay, on with the specifics. And this is going to include some speculation as well as deduction from what the evidence we have. But I really think that we need to do that. It helps us to bring this passage alive and make it more relevant today. And let's start with what we can be clear about, which is that the, sex, the situation is about a man's sexual relationship with his stepmother, not his mother. And we know that because of the way Paul describes her as his father's wife and not his mother. We can also assume, I think, that the father is dead. He's not mentioned, obviously. So she's not blood-related to her son-in-law and um, could even be the same age. Their behavior would not be illegal in the UK today. However, what is clear is that both in Old Testament law and Roman law in the centuries around when this was written, and in culture, in Roman culture at least at that time, it definitely was forbidden. And that really, really matters, as will become clear. Leviticus 18 verse 8, Deuteronomy 22 verse 30, and 27 20 all forbid such a marriage. And the Roman jurist Gaius wrote in the second century, it is illegal to marry a father's or mother's sister, nor can I marry her who was at one time my mother-in-law or stepmother. And in the century before, Paul writes, Cicero expressed disgust that when mother-in-law, disgust when mother-in-law marries son-in-law, describing it as unbelievable. So even though Corinth is in Greece, Corinth was a Roman-established city at that time. Many Romans were around, and of course many Jews were around too, not least in the church. Paul himself, of course, was Jewish. So it matters. I don't know what Greek norms were, but this was a clear problem culturally for many in that place. But also there may have been an abusive element to this story too. The passage doesn't say that it's consensual. And women in that time had no rights. So in all probability, the stepmother is dependent on the son-in-law to live. The conditions in which abuse could so easily occur. It's certainly suggestive that Paul's condemnation is focused on the man exclusively, it seems, and not on her. As well, of course, as on the church. For they've done nothing about it. The word that our version translated as proud in verse 2 could also be translated as complacent, as some translations do. And the Corinthians were guilty of both. Clearly complacent about the effects on the rest of the church that the example of this couple had set. And certainly aware of the church's reputation and witness and complacent about that. But also complacent about the effects on the couple themselves, even if abuse is not involved. And proud, if not of the situation, clearly about their freedom. For as a church, they were definitely at the libertarian end of the spectrum, compared to some of the other churches to which Paul writes. The church in Galatia, for example, that some of you will 
know about from the letter to the Galatians were very strict. And Paul takes them to task in that letter over imposing Jewish laws on Gentiles. Just as we today have some churches that are very legalistic still. Tim Keller, one of my favorite writers in America, quite helpfully describes them as older brother churches, using the metaphor of the prodigal son parable. They're probably less common than they used to be, say, in Victorian times, but there's still plenty around. But the Corinthians, by contrast, were most definitely a younger brother church. Their big emphasis was liberty, not legalism. And their openness to God's spirit as an undeniably charismatic church was combined, too, with openness to many other things, including things that were really not good for them. And we know that because Paul quotes their own sayings a couple of times later in the letter. Verse verse 12 of chapter 6, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial, Paul responds. And the same quote and the same reply are there in chapter 10 as well. For they had attempted to use the teaching of of Paul himself and his strong theology of Christian freedom in relation to the restrictions of the Old Testament law to justify their own behavior, which is most certainly not what he intended. They had clearly taken it too far. Christian freedom is meant to help us And to promote godliness and mission, not hinder it. Yet their complacency about this scandal was doing anything but. So they were the issues. What then was Paul's response? And I suspect for most of us, this is the tricky bit. We don't mind the exhortation to be holy and fruitful in mission. Of course we don't. But what we struggle with is the teaching about discipline and especially kicking people out of the church. But as we address that now, let me first highlight the reasons for it, which come from the crucial second half of verse 5. For the verse starts like this, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which doesn't sound very loving, does it? Appearing to want to subject someone to the control or torment of Satan. But the second part of the verse helps us understand what this actually means so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. In other words, it's not for his punishment, but for his salvation. What does this mean? It means he's not talking about some sort of ceremony of handing him over to Satan or wanting Satan to get his hands on him at all. Rather, it's simply denying the man of the approval and support of the Christian community in order that in time it would bring a change of his heart. In other words, being cruel to be kind, forcing the man to confront the reality of his sinfulness, to drive him back to God in repentance and ultimately hope. Just like any good parent is willing to discipline their children so that they would learn the error of their ways. So the destruction of their flesh that Paul talks about, I believe, is not the man's physical destruction. Otherwise, how you know, could he say that stuff about being saved on the day of the Lord? But rather setting him free from his captivity to his fleshly desires. 
And of course, once he's set free from that, the implication is that he'd be welcome to rejoin the church. So put like that, Paul's teaching doesn't seem quite so harsh or cruel or unforgiving or unloving, does it? It's the best thing for the man. It's the best thing for his stepmother. And ultimately, it's the best thing for those inside and outside the church. So that's the specifics of the situation in Corinth. I now want to broaden the focus out to the deeper principles that this case study highlights before, as I've said, we'll apply them to ourselves. So here's the first principle. We're called to be holy, not just individually, but collectively. Something actually Paul had set out right at the beginning of his letter, chapter 1, verse 2, where he wrote uh, to those he described as sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem was that the Corinthians had lost this conviction, this aspiration. They thought they were called to be free and to enjoy their freedom. But they didn't realize that with freedom comes responsibilities to model God's character and his love and holiness to the world. God's problem with Corinth wasn't, and the people there in the church, was not that there was some sinfulness, for we know we will all sometimes fail. That's why Jesus died for us. There is provision for those things. The problem here is that they weren't even trying. They'd lost the aspiration, the vision, the conviction, and any sense of shared responsibility to maintain the holiness of the church. So that's the first principle. We're called to be holy. Here's the second. We're called to witness. And that means that if someone in our fellowship is behaving in such a way to put off those outside the church from listening to us and turning to us, that's a massive problem. In those circumstances, requiring someone to leave the church as a last resort, in my mind, is acceptable. Not that a vicar would make that decision on their own. It would be a whole leadership team thing. And the Church of England might make that decision or a diocese. But the reason they would do it is because it's stopping the church achieving the very reason that we're here. To take forward the mission of Jesus to the world. And an obvious example of that is abuse. Churches up and down the country now have a zero tolerance of abuse, and we celebrate that, all of us. Yet we're all still paying for the failure to do that in the past, as so many institutions in our society are. And think for us, in terms of our witness, how many people have rejected the church, partly at least because of the abuse they've heard reported occurring by its priests or members and the way it was covered up or ignored. It's appalling, and we have to stand up and condemn and root out abuse wherever it's found. But that's not just sexual abuse, but other physical forms of abuse, and emotional and spiritual abuse too. I've seen at first hand the damage it does. The priest who took the funerals of my grandparents and my uncle 
and has played a major part in my family's life for decades, is now in prison for abusing teenagers in his church. And I can only imagine what a barrier to faith that is for some of my family. And I've worked with leaders who bullied their subordinates. And in each case, the absolutely right thing was to remove them from their posts. And equally, the statistics tell us that there will be people in this room who tragically experience abuse in some way in their lives. And as a church, we want to say that we stand with you in that. We want to help you with that. In a few weeks, we'll have Safeguarding Sunday where we mark that more formally. But if you've been abused in any way, please do disclose it and know that we will support you confidentially, lovingly, and wisely, and that we are absolutely on your side. Now, here's the third principle. We're called to help people deal with their sin, whatever they are. Not just sexual sin, greed, drunkenness, all sorts of things are mentioned there. Slander. And it applies to everything. As I hope I've shown, Paul's intervention was actually helping the offending man by confronting him with his sin. And we need to do likewise, but always seasoned with love and grace. Now, I firmly believe, and you'll be pleased to hear this, that this does not ordinarily require expelling someone from a church. For we're all works in progress. And of course, any healthy church should have a good number of people attending who are not yet Christians, but actively exploring faith. They can't be held to the same standards. But for those who are professing Christians, we need to maintain our shared commitment to holiness and to inspire and challenge each other to live it out. We all need that help. I certainly do. There are gentle, loving, effective, non-humiliating ways of inspiring and encouraging and even challenging each other to do that. Don't ignore those options. For the people we have influence over simply because we want an easy life, simply because we don't think it's very British to challenge and encourage each other. Now, of course, when we do do that gently and kindly, it's still possible some people won't like that at first. But in the long run, they'll be grateful for it when they've turned back to God and been set free. Probably many of us have been blessed in that way by someone in the past. I certainly have. And it is always the right thing if it's done in love because we care about that person and we want them to be set free. Here's the fourth principle. Despite its excesses, we shouldn't withdraw from the world. For that's giving up on the mission and hardly possible anyway. Paul acknowledges as much in verses 9 and 10, saying, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. And he continues in verse 12, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Something all Christians need to remember 
as there's nothing more off-putting to those that we seek to witness to than appearing to being judgmental or imposing our standards on others who don't share our faith. It's love without legalism that's needed, which after all is what Jesus himself practiced when he ate with the swindling tax collectors and the prostitutes. Think of Zacchaeus. Think of the opposition that he faced. And think about what it tells us about God's heart for those struggling with issues outside the church. Jesus maintained that balance of challenging those inside the faith community, especially the hypocrisy of the religious, whilst loving non-judgmentally those outside, inviting them in. And did it work? Of course it did. Their hearts were melted and they ended up believing in him. So let me finish then, as promised, with some actions for us all, right here, right now. Here's the first. Reflect and repent personally. It goes without saying that not all sin is conscious or willful or planned. But we need to regularly reflect prayerfully as to whether there is anything that we hadn't realized we're doing or we hadn't realized might be harmful to ourselves, others, or the holiness or witness of the church. Why not use the end of Psalm 139 as a template? Beautiful words that I often turn to as a prayer for myself. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And I'll leave a time of silence at the end for us to do exactly that. Here's the second action. Take ownership collectively for each other's holiness and spiritual growth, and not just for yourselves. If you're in a life group, why not make some commitments this week when you meet to challenge and inspire each other, giving permission to each other to do that, Or do that within some other group of which you're a member. Here's a third. Why not get a mentor or a prayer partner that you can make yourself accountable to? It's often the best way of working on your own growth and godliness. And I can help you find one if you can't easily do that on your own. I did that for someone just a few weeks ago. Just email me and ask or ask me after the service. And finally... Meditate on the holiness of God. Often the reason why we slip back in holiness is because we've made our God too small. We've remade him in our image, with our standards. When instead we need to remind ourselves of who he really is to inspire ourselves to respond. I just want to say as well that we will have a few people available to pray at the end of the service. Um, At the back, uh, they'll gather there. And if you want to share something or just get prayer for something that you're struggling with, they'd be delighted to to take you to a private place if, if needed and talk and pray for you there. But now we're going to have that time of silence.
for your own prayerful reflection and to identify your next steps before I pray for us all. the band comes up now let me pray for us all father god we come to you in our brokenness we come to you with whatever you have laid on our hearts today if we're struggling with what has been done to us would you minister your love and healing and grace if we're struggling with what we have done or are doing to ourselves or others, would you set us free? And would you renew our vision for our calling as a church to show your light and love, your truth, and your freedom to those who so badly need to hear it in the places that we live and work and study and among our families and friends. So anoint us, we pray. Renew our reverence for your holiness and our desire and resolve to live like you. Amen. So we're going to sing a song now that is all about that holiness. And let's use it as a prayer that we might see our lives in the light of how God is and how he